Please open your Bible to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. And as you turn there, first I want to thank you for being a praying church. Uh, just I was uh, so blessed by that this week, even the past couple days as I received texts and emails uh, and in conversation from several people telling me that they were praying for me for this morning. Um, and as your pastor, as a pastor who serves here, there is not a, a greater blessing you can give me than to be praying for me. So thank you for doing that. Um, one, one member who, who said they were praying for me, Chuck Price, he also mentioned to me that it has been 18 months to the day since we started our series in Matthew. So we started on September 6th, 18 months ago. I don't even want to guess the year. 2020. There we go. And what a journey it's been as we've made our way through this gospel. In this gospel, Matthew sets out to show us Jesus Christ. He wants to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is from the line of David. He is the new and better Moses. That he is himself, Emmanuel, God with us. So he does this as he introduces us to Jesus through the, the birth narrative in Matthew 1 through 3. He does this as he shows us Jesus' teaching, as Jesus comes, says he comes to fulfill the law. He does this as, as Jesus performs many miracles. He does this in showing how people respond to Jesus. Last week, Larry taught us on the problem of unbelief as we looked at how Jesus was rejected by those in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, and then also by Herod, the man who killed John the Baptist. And the great problem of unbelief is that it blinds us from seeing Jesus. It keeps us from seeing that which is most important, that which is most true. And here Matthew has just shown us these, these two tragic instances of people rejecting Jesus. And this morning, as we make our way through Matthew 14, what we aim to do is, is not be blind to who Jesus is, but to see Jesus for who he is. The narratives that are before us today are, are both remarkable stories they're compelling and they're challenging. And while there are various lessons that we can draw from these stories, before they are in, uh, inspiring stories, they are true stories. And these, these stories are meant to point us to who Jesus is. So may the Holy Spirit open our eyes to see him more clearly as we look to his word. Now we're going to walk through this text together looking at two portraits of Jesus. Two portraits of Jesus. And the first portrait is this. A compassionate king. A compassionate king. Now, so we remember our context. Look with me, beginning chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, this Herod is the son of the man who was once known as king in the region the one who ruled at the time that Jesus was born. But unlike his father, this Herod was not actually called a king. He liked to think of himself as a king. Last week we saw how he held this drunken feast where he promised his stepdaughter that he would give her whatever she might ask, like as something a king would do. In Mark it talks about how he offers to give her up to half the kingdom. Herod was conniving. He was arrogant. He was indulgent. And now he has had John beheaded. Now pick up in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. 
We're going to pause there. I think it can be all too easy for us to forget about how completely and totally human Jesus was. He had a real human body. He experienced real human emotions. Jesus walked and he sat. He laughed and he cried. He would get hungry and thirsty. Jesus would get hungry and thirsty. He would get tired and he would sleep. And there were times that Jesus wanted to be alone. Now, I'm not going to make a defense for being introverted or for withdrawing when things get bad, but clearly, whether it's in response to Herod's unbelief or to John's death, Jesus has this need to pull away from all that's going on. Jesus wants solitude. Now, it could be that in the midst of thinking of John's death, Jesus is, is aware that there's another death that's coming. And in this rush of emotions from the weight of what's to come, Jesus wants to be alone. Verse 13 says more. It says, Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Word quickly spreads about where Jesus is headed, and so the crowds rush on ahead. And verse 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Let's pause again. Remember, Jesus is human. He had real human feelings and emotions. He was tired. Jesus got on this boat for a reason, and that was to withdraw from all that's been going on, to be by himself, to be alone. But the crowds hear of it. And now Jesus comes ashore and sees this great crowd. Now put yourself in his shoes. Ask yourself, how do I respond to interruptions, to what I want? How do you respond when you just want to have a little bit of time by yourself and then suddenly someone's knocking on the door. Steph Wethy shared with me a story of when she was a young mom. She says she, this is just a, a, something she vividly remembers. She had twin four-year-olds, a two-year-old, and a three-month-old baby with colic. And she was exhausted. And she just wanted to be left alone, away from the crowd of four kids following her, everywhere she went, needing her. But God, in his kindness, brought her to this story as she comforted her baby in the middle of the night. And she read how Jesus turned and saw the crowds. He wanted to be alone. He wanted solitude. He turned and saw the crowds. And his response was one of compassion. Look at verse 14 again. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, Jesus certainly has this desire to rest, to withdraw, but he sees this great crowd of people, this great crowd of people with, with needs, and he has compassion on them. His heart goes out to them. But not only does Jesus see their need, he sees their need. Not only does he feel this compassion, there's this, this rush of emotion, but he acts to meet their need. So Jesus healed their sick. His compassion meant both attitude and action. Now, the compassion of Jesus is not just sympathetic thought, like he just sent him a get well soon card, thinking of you. But it was a real meeting of needs. And this was all in spite of the fact that Jesus came to this desolate place to be alone. So here is Jesus, wearied by his work, Weighed down by what's to come, now spending his day 
compassionately caring for the great crowd of people that has gathered there. Now, Jesus' disciples, in their own compassion, take in the situation. They see the scene. They think through where they are, this desolate place, and they take into account the time. It's become late in the day. And so they come to Jesus with this plan to care for the crowds. So look at verse 15 and see their, see their plan. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. The disciples are sitting there thinking, You know, Jesus has done so much for all these people. It's time for them to go and do something for themselves. Take care of themselves. Go buy food for themselves. Verse 16 says, But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Can you imagine being disciples in this moment? They're sitting there looking out at this huge group of people, thousands of people, and they know they don't even have enough food for themselves. I mean, perhaps it was this compassion for the crowds was a little bit selfishly motivated. Perhaps they're thinking, you know, I'm kind of getting hungry. I would like to go somewhere and get some food. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Oh yeah, no big deal. Let's just go whip up something for 5,000 people. Like, no, no big deal. What could Jesus possibly mean? Maybe he doesn't quite understand the situation. So they said to him in verse 17, we have only five loaves here and two fish. The Tedesco boys over here, they brought me this morning little bags of two fish and five loaves. And I asked them, do you think this is enough to feed the whole church? And they said, no. And one of them came and said, well, maybe ten loaves and four fish, because I've got my bag too. I said, do you think that's enough? No. And these loaves that the disciples had there, they're, they're not these big, fresh loaves of French or Italian bread that just kind of stretch out. They were like small rolls of barley. The fish were likely sardines. Not only is this not enough for the disciples, it's hardly enough for one person. But while this small meal could never feed the great crowds, in the hands of Jesus, it will be far more than enough. Verse 18, And Jesus said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now, I don't have any explanation for how this worked in the natural world. But that's what makes it a miracle. How did Jesus just keep breaking these loaves apart and just handing them out to the disciples? I mean, think about that. Like, at what point are the disciples, like, taking it and realizing, like, this is a lot more than five loaves. Like, what in the world is going on? I, I know for me, I probably would have started just laughing. Like, this is just crazy. And you just keep going, just keep going out to the thousands of people. I mean, maybe even like if it was just a hundred people, that would have been, I, my mind would have been blown. Or maybe Jesus could have said, you know what, 
Adults, you're on your own. Children, come to me. I've got five loaves and two fish. I'm going to feed you all. That would have been amazing. But Jesus does so, so much more than that. Unless you think maybe Matthew's just kind of misremembering things, it might be helpful to know that this is the only miracle, apart from Jesus' resurrection, that's recorded in every gospel. All four of them record this. Clearly, to those who knew Jesus, to those who were there on that day, there was no doubt about what took place that evening. Jesus miraculously and abundantly meets the needs of all those gathered. And we should also, I think, find great encouragement in the fact that there were leftovers. Leftovers. Who needs leftovers? You have five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus feeds thousands of people. And he doesn't just feed them until they were satisfied. He has leftovers. But what seems so meager to us? What seems so small and hopeless to us in the hands of Jesus is far, far more than we could ask or imagine. And where Matthew 14 opens with Herod, the wannabe king, hosting this drunken feast that winds up with John the Baptist murdered. This is held up against Jesus, the king, holding this simple feast of bread and fish motivated by compassion. What God reveals of himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, that, that this Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what we see put on display on this desolate hillside by the Sea of Galilee. Look and marvel at Jesus. He is full of mercy and grace, full of compassion, able to meet our every need, able to abundantly meet our every need. Here we see the compassionate king. But that's not the only picture of Jesus we have come to see this morning. We see the compassionate king. Second, we see a powerful savior. A powerful savior. Verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now here there's this sudden and abrupt change. Matthew doesn't tell us what happened between the people eating and being satisfied and Jesus' dismissal of the disciples and the crowds. It's actually kind of remarkable to notice that there is no reaction from the crowds in, in Matthew's recount, recounting of this. It's kind of bizarre. But it's not important to Matthew's main point. He wants us to see Jesus. Matthew writes not to tell us about how satisfied the crowds were or how great the disciples were. He writes to tell us about Jesus Christ. And what does he want us to know at this point about Jesus? That Jesus went to pray. And just as a brief aside, if Jesus goes off to pray, how much more should we pray? Here is God incarnate. The one who has been healing. He has just fed thousands of people with five little rolls of bread and two fish. And now he is going to pray. I mean, I think we tend to pray in, in those moments of greatest need. We're just like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to pray. Here was one, when we looked to Jesus, who didn't have any of needs that we have. And he goes to pray. But we need to remember that Jesus isn't going off to pray just to act as an example for us. Jesus is going off to pray alone because communion with his Father, 
talking to his father, depending on his father, is the one thing that's necessary for him. And the same is true for us. Jesus has been facing this mounting opposition to his life, to his teaching, and he knows what he came to do. He knows the challenge he is going to face. It's only going to be greater. So he goes to pray. Picking back up in verse 23, it says, When evening came, he was there alone. Verse 24, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So Jesus has has sent the disciples off across the sea. He's dismissed the crowds. He's gone off to pray. And a storm arises as the disciples are out on the boat, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. Now these disciples, four of them were fishermen. They have grown up on this sea. They're working their way across the sea. There's, There's not really anything that can surprise them on this sea. And John tells us in his recounting of this miracle that they were about three or four miles out from shore. But this was not an easy three or four miles. They were, again, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. It's a struggle. But at this point in Matthew, where we're at right now, it doesn't seem all that unusual. I mean, storms come up. That is until we read verse 25. And we're just going to read that first phrase. And in the fourth watch of the night. Now, I don't wear four watches, but at that time, in that region, between sunset and sunrise, it was broken down into watches, watches of the night. And each watch lasted about three hours. So from sunset, let's say from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., that was the first watch. Then you'd have from 9 p.m. to 12 a.m., that was the second watch. From 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., third watch. And from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., the fourth watch. Now these disciples, they set out in the evening after the crowds had been fed. Jesus dismissed them all. So they have probably been out on this boat three or four miles out battling the wind and the waves probably for about nine, maybe ten hours. That's a long time to go only three or four miles. So verse 25 says, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. The man who moments ago was, was weary and withdrew to pray. The man who eats and drinks, who gets tired and sleeps. The man, I have no idea how much he weighed, but let's say he weighed 170 pounds. This man, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. No, the water wasn't frozen solid and Jesus wasn't riding a hoverboard. Jesus was walking on the sea. Just like you or I might walk on this floor, Jesus was walking on the sea. Who walks on water? Job 9.8 tells us that God is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Isaiah 43 says that he is the one who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Who walks on water? Who tramples the sea? God. Look at verse 26. But when the disciples saw him on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. That's exactly what happened. 
What would you do? Someone, something, something that looks like someone is walking on the water. The disciples are terrified. They can't explain what they see. Verse 27 says this, But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, let's not forget the situation. The, the wind and the waves, they're active. This is not just a calm sea. I, I tend to think Jesus walking on the water, it was like, oh yeah, just like this perfectly smooth lake like glass. And there's Jesus just walking along it. No, this is in the middle of a storm that these fishermen have been battling for hours on end. And there's Jesus just strolling along. And he tells them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart in the Greek is just one word. Take heart. Have courage. Do not worry. And Jesus follows this up with a second instruction. Do not be afraid. This is one of the most often repeated commands in Scripture. Do not fear. Why? Why should we not be afraid? Why does he say take heart? Three simple words are here that we read. Take heart. It is I. It is I. It's almost a casual declaration. When there's a knock on my study door and I ask, who is it? I receive the reply from one of my kids. It's me. But these three simple words carry far more significance than just saying, it's me. In the original Greek, this phrase, it is I, is actually just two words. Ego a me. And this phrase literally translates to this. I am. I am. As Jesus walks on water, as the disciples in terror see him in the distance, Jesus responds, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. I am. Two of the most significant words in Scripture. Because I am is the name that God gives himself. In Genesis 17.1, the Lord appears to Abraham and says, I am God Almighty. In Isaiah 45.5, he declares, I am the Lord, and there is no other. And in Exodus 3, God comes to Moses in a burning bush and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And in verse 13 of Exodus 3, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now as Matthew tells us this story, this is who we should see upon the waters. The great I am. The one who feeds the great crowd is shown here to be God himself, the one who walks on water. Like how one commentator says simply, Jesus decided on this particular day to walk on water because he wanted to make clear that he is Emmanuel. That's what this is all about. Look at Jesus. See who he is in his compassion, in his power, in his authority. No one is mighty as he is. Who rules the raging sea? God does. And look at Peter's response of faith in verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you 
on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. This is crazy. Peter has spent his whole life out on these waters. But he's never once, now I'm speculating here, but I think it's a pretty fair speculation, he's never once thought, hey, let me just step over the side of the boat and walk on the water. But he looks out in the midst of the storm, in the midst of beating waves and raging wind, and he sees Jesus. And when Peter sees Jesus, all his fear is gone. His fear melts away. His terror of the storm is gone. The storm's not over, but Peter's not afraid of it. When he sees Jesus, he has courage rooted not in Peter's ability to walk on water. He had never done that. But in Jesus Christ's power to hold him up. But like each one of us, Peter's eyes, they don't stay fixed on Jesus, do they? His circumstances, the trial that he faces in that moment, they they pull his attention away from seeing Jesus. Look at verse 30. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to cry out, I mean, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, what happened to Peter? One moment he's courageously walking on water, the next he is sinking, crying out for help. Did he forget who Jesus was? Did he forget what Jesus had done? He had just done in feeding thousands of people? Did he forget what Jesus was doing right in front of him, walking on water? No, in that moment, Peter looked away. He began to doubt where Jesus had led him. He saw those big waves. He heard the howling wind and he thought, what am I doing? But Peter's doubt, thanks be to God, is not the end of the story. For while Peter failed to keep his eyes on Jesus, Jesus never looked away from Peter. Verse 31 says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now notice that Jesus says this to Peter, not after they get back into the boat, but while Jesus is still standing there on the water, while the storm is still raging, while the wind is still howling. I mean, like, Jesus, can't we maybe get back in the boat before you start asking me questions and rebuking me? Now, I've done this before as a parent. One of my children does something that's not the smartest. And sometimes before the problem is solved or before the mess is cleaned up or before they're up off the floor, I'm asking, what were you thinking? What happened in your mind that told you, oh, this is a great idea? I only ask that question. I only go there when I know that my child is safe from whatever situation they're in. It's not like my child is in the way of oncoming traffic and I ask, what are you doing? No, I go and save them, and then I'll ask them, what were you thinking? But here, while Jesus has pulled Peter up, they're still on the water. Why? Because Jesus already knew the solution to the problem. He knows that Peter is safe. And this is why. Because Jesus knows exactly who he is. He is the great I am. Faith in him, eyes fixed on him, was the solution is the solution to all of Peter's problems. So verse 32 says, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. 
We must not forget that the point of this whole narrative, what Matthew sets out to do, is to show us Jesus. There are a lot of lessons that we can learn from Peter, both his, his courage and his faith in looking to Jesus and stepping out, and then also the danger of doubt and unbelief. But before this is this inspiring story, this story is true, meant to point us to Jesus. Matthew wants to show us the unmatched power of Jesus as he walks on water, as he stills the storm. You see, Jesus is he's unfailing. He is reliable. He is worthy of our trust, worthy of having our eyes, our thoughts, our hearts entirely fixed on him. And not only that, the lights will go out. And he is worthy of our worship. We see this response, this right response to him in verse 33. And in, when the lights turn on, you'll be able to see it. There we go. Verse 33, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are the Son of God. This confession is what Matthew's narrative has been building towards. Jesus is not only a brilliant teacher, confounding the wisdom of this world. He is not only a miracle worker bringing light in the midst of darkness. He is the very Son of God. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. And He alone is worthy of our worship. Now Matthew brings this narrative to an end with more crowds, with more healing, with more compassion and power from Jesus. Look with me at verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. After feeding the thousands on the hillside, after walking on water, after calming the storm, Jesus and his disciples reached the other side. And no sooner do they arrive when word spreads that Jesus is there. And so once again... The crowds come. Now, in this in this narrative, crowds come up several times, and I always think of uh, in the in the Grinch when the, how the Grinch stole Christmas, and the Grinch is talking about how he hates Christmas, their celebration. And they say the noise, noise, noise. That's what I think of with the crowds in here. There's just crowds, crowds, crowds. Jesus can't get away from him, but when he sees those crowds, he has compassion on them. So once again, all who are sick, they come, and everyone who came to Jesus was made well. And in a sense, Matthew summarized the point of these last two stories. We see the compassion and power of Jesus displayed as Jesus is powerfully sufficient for these people in their need. So how do we respond? What should we take away from this? Just have one, one simple point. I'm going to state it twice. Marvel and take heart. Look and do not fear. It is seeing and knowing Christ's compassion and power that should drive out all of our fears. That's why I told these two stories together. There have been and will be days where you may go hungry. There will come times where it seems what you have could never be enough. Maybe that has to do with money. Maybe it has to do with time. Maybe it has, just has to do with the limitations that come with being human. Take heart as you look to Jesus. This is why. Because He is looking at you. He sees your needs and has compassion 
on you in your need. And more than that, He can abundantly meet your needs. So marvel and take heart. Look and do not fear. But lest you think that Jesus should just help you out already. Notice that in these stories, we see that Jesus doesn't necessarily use His power as His friends want Him to. They fought that storm. The disciples, they fought that storm for hours. They had to wait. One commentator says this. He says, He let them wait, stomachs churning, doubts rising, straining at their oars until the fourth watch. And perhaps this is where you are now. Or perhaps this is where you will be soon. It's likely that you will be here soon at some point. There is no promise that the road that we walk will be easy. There is no promise that tragedy won't come barging into your house. No promise that storms won't toss you to and fro. No promise that you won't be rejected or scorned, ostracized or hated. I can't say that you or your loved one will be healed in this life from your sickness or your pain. But I do know this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And He has power enough for everything and anything you face. And He says this. Take heart. I am. I am. Jesus says, do not be afraid. And He says this because He is here. It's His presence that rids us of fear. The same Jesus who fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish is the same Jesus who calms the storm. This is the Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. Brothers and sisters, what a difference it is to know this Jesus. Not just to know His compassion and power, but to know that He is with us. So look to Him. Fix your eyes on Him. Place your trust in Him. For there is no one and nothing that can meet your needs like Jesus can. There is nothing that can protect you like Jesus. There is no one who can provide for you like Jesus. No one who gave Himself for you to redeem you but Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let us look and marvel at who He is and what He has done for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for revealing Yourself to us in Your Son. Emmanuel, God with us. Thank You for putting on display His power and compassion in these these two remarkable miracles that, that occurred in a real place at a real time. Thank You for the way that these miracles, these stories, they they point us to You and the sufficiency to meet our every need that we find in You. And thank You that you You are present with us. May we keep our eyes, give us grace to keep our eyes fixed on You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.